Uh, good morning. Good to see everyone. You ready to get into God's Word? All right. Good, 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 good. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to have the scriptures on the screens here in a moment. We're going to take out the handout sheet here in a moment. But before we do that, um, one of the songs that we sang there at the end of worship was Good, Good Father, right? And one of the things is that we are to take on the nature of God. And, and one of the things that he kind of has planted within me when I look out at, uh, at his kids is kind of a father's heart. And so what I wanted to do was to pray for some of you that are feeling uh, oppressed down and shoved down by life circumstance or by the enemy. So let me explain this a little bit. And then what I'm going to have you do is if it applies to you, I'm going to have you stand up. And then I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll kind of move on with a message. But here's kind of what I was thinking. You know, sometimes we come into church, and our week or our weeks or our years get heavy, and they start weighing down on us. One of the things that the Bible talks about, uh, and, I, and I always keep thinking of the Greek word for it, but, but it's the idea of crushing down when life becomes crushing that god helps us stand up under it it's almost as if he's saying listen he didn't relieve everything he didn't fix everything and make it easy what he did is he gave us the strength to stand up underneath the weight so if you feel like man what i really need is prayer for freedom i need prayer for breakthrough i need prayer for peace because it's just one week after another week and it's been challenging and i feel like i'm either slogging through the mud or i can't seem to catch a break i just constantly feel like everything's heavy on me and i just need some freedom maybe that's freedom in a in a mindset change right i mean because maybe where you are you need to be but maybe god needs to give you the buoyancy of christian joy to be able to capture your heart once again what, whatever he needs to do he needs to do so if any of you right now are feeling like man i could sure use prayer for that why don't you stand up now here's the funny thing about standing up it's not like god's looking and going oh i didn't even know that about you i'm so glad you stood that uh I completely went over my head. Uh, he sees you whether you're sitting or not. What standing does is just almost like a reaching out to the Lord of going, Lord, I'm right there right now. I really want your touch. Just special. Let me know. Now, if you didn't stand, then later on you're like, oh, I should have stood. He gets it. All right. He understands. He understands. Any late standers. You know what I'm saying? And uh, <laughs> that's all right. There's none in the front. Um, just just what I want to do is pray over you that also gives an indicator for everyone standing around you That would you please intercede for who that is standing around you? Would you please take their? Pressure on your heart the bible says that we who are strong Ought to bear with the failings of the weak in other words if you got strength in you help, how about you help lift up the burden of someone that is lacking strength right now all right so everyone standing just know you're being defended know that you're being prayed for know that your heavenly father is listening and we're just going to lift you up right now heavenly father we ask right now in the name of jesus christ with all the authority that you've given us uh lord as your children to be able to call out to our dad knowing that you're listening dad we need some rescue we need some freedom we need a, a breakthrough we need some type of refreshment for Father, our spirit has been under pressure for long enough to where we thought we were going to crack about a month ago, and then it kept going. Lord, it is true that you have revealed that you are sustaining us, but it's just hard all the time. And I pray, Lord, that whatever it is, whatever the breakthrough means, whether or not, Lord, you take over our mind and give us your thoughts, whether or not you break through in our situation, or whether or not, Lord, you allow someone to come alongside us and help us lift up this burden. Whatever it may be, please do not leave us where we're at. That, Father, we're asking that as your word says that you are the one that renews feeble knees. You're the one that lifts us up like on wings of eagles. That you're the one that is able to breathe life. That, that Lord, that 
Adam was but dust until your breath breathed into him and he became a living, sensate being. In the same way, Lord, our spirits are dry and we're feeling crushed and weighed down. Would you just lift us up? I pray encouragement over this entire body, over the entire campus. Encouragement even into the little babies back in the nursery. Father, where they get a revival in their own spirit, where there's joy and giggling and laughter. And Father, all the way through our campus to this place, I pray unity and peace and joy and fun and excitement that that God, even though the world may be difficult, we live in a different citizenship. We live with our minds and our hearts towards heaven. We uh, pull from the resources that are at your throne. And therefore, Father, we have what you have and we have more than enough. And so, God, I just pray that you would wash us clean and then give us all the reinvigoration that we need. Father, reach in and change our chemicals if necessary. Lift us up out of depression. Lift us up out of anxiety. Begin, Lord, to just fill us with your spirit. Every place we give you in surrender, would you fill up with your power and your strength. May we walk out this day expectant and joyful and anticipatory about what our dad is going to do for us. May you be glorified in every bit of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Praise the Lord. And sometimes you just got to go to church and get defended. You know what I mean? Sometimes I, gosh, the world's hard, right? We got to get into a place where someone can back us up a little bit. And I think that's part of what church is for. All right. Why don't we go ahead and take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin. If it looked like I just almost tripped right there, I almost tripped right there. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Most of you are looking down at your notes. All right. So last week when we were together, I was sharing this idea that if there's no Jesus, then there's no peace. You, you either have a bitter situation. You remember I told you that analogy. There was In the Old Testament, there was a water that could not be drank. That was bitter water. But then they, God had him drag, what, a tree into it, and it became sweet. And I talked about the tree being the cross, the tree being the gospel, the tree being Jesus. And in our bitter situations, we bring in Jesus, and it changes the very tone. Well, I want to carry on that theme because I said the opposite is true as well. You cannot have a sweet situation and remove Jesus out of it and still expect it to be sweet. You don't get to just remove the gospel or remove the cross out of a situation and still have the blessings of God. Okay, so carrying on that exact same theme, let me just change it one degree and talk about a different nuance. And I would say it this way. A temple without the Spirit. Or let's make it a little bit more practical for us. A church without the Holy Spirit is damaging and dangerous. The church without the Holy Spirit is religion. The church without Holy Spirit is Phariseeism. And it breeds only death. Here's why. Just being very practical about human nature. And do you understand that this place is a power place? That this is a place where you have seen churches have been used for politics. Churches have been used for power manipulation. Churches have been used for bad things. That, that throughout the history, when the spirit is not in charge in the church, bad stuff goes down. You understand what I mean? Because it is a powerful cultural icon. As a matter of fact, it is only the presence of God in a church, in a temple. We're going to be talking a lot about the temple today. It is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in the church or in the temple that makes it sweet, makes it good at all. If you get a whole bunch of people together, Hitler got a whole bunch of people together. And it was not good. What's the difference? The presence of God is the difference. What we need and what we crave and what I will continue to challenge you as your pastor is to say the one critical thing we must have here is the presence of God. Everything else is details. 
right? We need the presence of God because if God is here, even if I blow the message, it's still good. Even if, even if the worship somehow breaks down because the guitars blow out and, and the sound system goes down, if God is here, we had worship. You know what I mean? And so what I want more than anything else is to chase as a family, as a body, over the thick presence of God to dwell here. That's what I want. But if you pull that out and you are left only with religiosity, somebody's going to get hurt. I would suggest to you everybody's going to get hurt. All right, so you're with me on that one. Let's take it one more step forward. I also have shared with you that the Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You got that one? I mean, you understand that, yeah? Our bodies are houses or walking mobile temples. Where we go because they are to house or inhabit the presence of God. And that's really what a temple is. The difference between a, a, the temple and a house is God lives in one. You understand what I'm saying? So if we are temples of the Holy Spirit, then we have been designed to house the indwelling Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit does not dwell there, what then are we? Hmm. We are a temple without spirit. That's not going to go well. You understand? That's not going to be good. That's not going to lead to life. That's not going to be peaceful and joyful and kind, right? So as much as I, I, I never want to play the game of fear factor, right? Where I'm, I'm always trying to scare people into one or the other because I, I felt like I had a lot of that growing up. So I have a lot of reaction to that, yeah? So let's begin with a positive statement. I'll get to a scary statement later. <laughs> what I learned is just be nice first and then be mean later. Anyway, it's not important. The positive statement is this, and I want to speak to anyone here or can hear my voice, whether that's on the radio or on video, whatever it is. If any of you do not believe or do not know for certain that the Holy Spirit indwells you, and if you're even going, what in the world does that even mean? All right, you're who I'm talking to. All right. If you have never said, God, I don't want to do this on my own. I want you, I, would I want you to fill me up. I want you to be with me all the time. I don't want to have to go try to chase you down. I want to submit to you. Would you be charge of my life? Would you tell me my agenda? May I live for you? Would you rescue me? Save me? God, I want to be one of your kids. Would you adopt me and love me and let everything Jesus did take away my sins and make me brand new? I know I messed everything up. I'm sorry about that. And I'm crushed by who I've become. However, I don't want any of that garbage. I want all that baggage away and I want to be made brand new. Let's say you've never done that. Instead of going the scary route, here's what I want to tell you. You have yet to become who you were built to be. I want to send out the message that you are yet as glorious as God made you. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. The Spirit is what makes something glorious. The Spirit is what makes something glorious. The Bible describes us as jars of clay. Jars of clay are not necessarily fascinating in and of themselves, but what do they contain? We are containers. Therefore, a container, we may be very similar in container. What makes the difference between one to the next is what they house, is what's within them. If we do not have the Holy Spirit, we have yet to begin with what we were built to do. God wants to do things in us and through us. God wants to do things to us. God wants to change the world and partner along with us. Those are all things waiting for you that God is saying, let me come in and transform your life. Now, there's some of us that we are rescued, we are saved. There was a time absolutely where we surrendered to our Lord and we were adopted into his family and we are secure there. Unfortunately, since that moment, we have spent a lot of time fighting with him 
crushing and quenching the spirit and saying, God, not that. God, not that. No, thank you for that. I got this one. You understand what I'm saying? So how do we have more presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives in our church? How do we have the presence of God here? It has to do with relationship and surrender. That's what it has to do with. There's, it, as long as we spend our lives in resistance to God's will, we're going to have it limited. And it's not going to be as glorious as we would like. But the more we say yes to God and no to ourselves, the more freedom he has to move. You understand what I'm saying? I don't think this is rocket science. I think it's pretty basic. God says that he will fill up whatever space we give him if we're full of ourselves there's not a lot of space to move infinite power itty bitty living space (laughs) right that's an aladdin reference for those of you that don't watch cartoons (laughs) as a side note just to help understand is that many of you that are maybe examining christianity and trying to figure out if this thing is for you. you, Yeah, what about the whole hell thing? I mean, you all keep talking about the hell thing. Man, if I don't accept Jesus, I'm going to hell. Well, that sounds rather rude. Um, Actually, in my opinion, it is not at all. And let me tell you why. The Bible is very, very clear on what hell is for. Hell is a holding cell. Ultimately, it will be thrown into the lake of fire. But hell is a very specific purpose. Now, the Bible doesn't always give us easy answers. And on this one, it does. It says, and hell was created for, and it fills in the blank. Do you remember that? Who is it created for? The devil and his angels. Do you remember that? It says it right in black and white. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. It was not created for people. That's not the point of it. It was only created for enemies of God. Now then, if indeed you were built to house the Holy Spirit of God and you say, no thanks, I want to be filled with me. No thanks, I want to be filled with the bad guys. I don't want you. Then you then have selected a team and the team that goes there is who you selected. So understand very clearly, the Bible says it is God's will that none shall perish, that all have eternal life. That's really what he wants. But he prepared hell for his enemies. Is that what you're saying you want to be? So understand that hell is not a whole thing of, oh, if you don't do what I say, then I'm just going to beat you up. No, it's a, hey, I got a place for my enemies. I don't want you to be my enemy. I don't want you going there. I want you with me. And you go, no, I don't like you. Then yes, you've made an option and a selection. You understand what I'm saying? All right, let's dive into this. Um, uh, What we're talking about is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. And you would go, man, that sounds more like a college course than it does than it does church. Well, we kind of do a hybrid here at Bridgeway, right? It's kind of a little bit more teaching on that. And as a matter of fact, the passage that we're going to cover is going to cover three very specific situations. A situation that happened in, in uh, B.C. 170, in A.D. 70, and at the end of the world. All three are going to be referred to in the very small passage that we're going to study today. So yes, I will be giving you a lot of that history stuff. If you like that, you might want to jot down some notes. But I need you to know why the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. To the Jews, that's the last time the temple stood. To the Jews, they have a sad day at the beginning of August every year. For the time that it first got destroyed and the second time it got destroyed. It is what crushed their religion because that's where they did their animal sacrifice that's where they connected with god their whole entire religious center was based on the temple and it got blown out of the water they've never been the same since everything about 
their religion is we've got to get back the temple mount get the temple reinstituted and then we're going to be all right again what's the problem with that they can't get the temple mount back that is muslim occupied and controlled so that's why there's so much tension in jerusalem we got that everybody on current events okay good 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 but i want to remind you why the temple was destroyed because it may cause you some type of fear as you're thinking through all these ramifications. The temple was destroyed not because the Romans got the upper hand. The temple was not destroyed because God took the day off. The temple was not destroyed by accident. The temple was destroyed on purpose because God wanted it that way. Why? Two reasons. Number one, judgment for rejection of the Messiah. When Jesus marched into the city of Jerusalem proclaiming himself to be the coming Messiah and they said, no thanks, we don't want you. He then showed the prophecy that it would be destroyed. You understand? So first of all, it's judgment. Number two, the Bible says that Jesus went in and cleansed the temple and then left the temple just like in the old testament the holy spirit left the temple went up on the mount of olives and looked back at jerusalem jesus just did that in our storyline left the temple goes up on the mountain looks back and tells his disciples it's going to get wrecked why because the spirit is out of the temple and when the spirit leaves the temple it becomes dangerous and damaging as mere religion. So we're shutting it down. We all got that? All right, excellent. Let's dive into the first passage. It looks like this. But when you see Jerusalem, that's the, the capital city of Israel. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus says, then know that its desolation has come near. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, on that day, dot, 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 all right, I added the dot, dot, dot part. <laughs> the abomination of desolation. You ever heard that? Man, if you grew up in the church, you've heard this phrase, Right? abomination of desolate it just sounds so dramatic you know what it really means abomination means something god doesn't like or something god hates desolation means it's wrecked or wiped out so the whole phrase says when something or someone shows up that god hates and he destroys something that is an abomination of desolation that's it and you go, well, well, who is it specifically? That's my point. It actually applies to multiple events. Remember I told you about the prophetic spiral? About how a prophecy would be given and it would have some fulfillment in that day, but then later on it would have even greater fulfillment and then greater fulfillment. And then ultimately it's going to nail down to the exact final fulfillment, usually in the end times. You know what I'm talking about? That's what's happening here. The abomination of desolation is a phrase that was used by Daniel in chapter 12, verse 11. Daniel in the lion's den. You all remember Daniel, right? Daniel, the first part of his book is kind of like an action book. It's kind of like Daniel does this and he sees dreams and there's all these crazy things. He's got these buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and you know, uh, the, he's interacting with the king and then he gets thrown in the lion's den, but he gets scared. You know, God lets him out and... Do you realize that the last portion of his book is almost entirely prophetic? This guy saw stuff about the future. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he uses a phrase. He said, there will be a king of the north. And when he comes in, he will be the abomination of desolation that will stand in the holy place and just wreck stuff. Now, all scholars agree that prophecy has already been fulfilled. Now, Daniel wrote almost 600 years prior to Jesus being born. And he was right. All the scholars are right. Something happened 200 years before Jesus was born in 170 B.C. 170 B.C., the Syrian king from the north, 
bad guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, swept down into Jerusalem, took over the temple, put a new altar to Zeus, the fake god, on top of God's holy altar and sacrificed a pig and let its blood run down over everything because that's non-kosher. You're not allowed to do that. He chased out all the priests of the temple and made the temple a brothel. Now, that's a very clear fulfillment to a prophecy. Would you call him an abomination of desolation? Yeah, okay, there you go. When, when some dude does something God hates and he wrecks God's stuff, that's an abomination of desolation. All right. So everybody believes that that is exactly what Daniel was talking about. What's weird about this? Jesus has said that it's going to happen again. Jesus now, 200 years later, is saying, yeah, 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 you remember that Daniel thing? Here it comes again. The spiral is hitting again, and it's going to... Now, are we going all the way to the end of the world? In my opinion, no, we are not. We're going to take a break at AD 70, because something terrible happened there that was an abomination of desolation. All right, here we go. The next passage says this. When you see the armies begin to surround, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out of the country enter it. Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take what is in his house away, nor enter his house to take anything out. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Why? Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Here's why I think we're talking about A.D. 70 specifically and only referring lightly to the end times. Because in the end times, there's nowhere you're going to run. If you're told to flee to the mountains, it's really not going to help you out. <laughs> it's the end of the world. And the end of the world actually means the end of the world. Therefore, you, I don't know where you're going to run. And the, uh, the, the power and sizable influence of the enemy at that time is so considerable, running into the mountain is not going to help you out. So this is clearly a reference to AD 70. When you see the armies come in and they're going to take you over, get out of Dodge. This is actually intensely practical advice that Jesus is letting them know. He knows that after he dies, it's only maybe 40, 38 years before this thing's going to happen. So he's telling them practical advice. Guys, when you see Rome begin to surround Jerusalem, I want you to get out because this is not for you. Get out of the town. And when I tell you get out of the town, I want you to follow my advice. I don't want you going back and loading up and getting all your gear and doing all that. Oh, I couldn't possibly leave my DVR. I don't want any of that, right? I want you to grab only what is necessary and I want you to hit the road. And, and I think he kind of did the overkill on explanation. If you're outside, don't go inside. If you're upstairs, don't go down, you know, all that stuff. It means get out of there. And then he said, why? Remember Lot's wife. Oh, that's an Old Testament reference. You know that, right? You know who Lot's wife is, the big salt lick. You remember her? You remember her? All right, if you don't know that story, well, this is interesting. Abraham, the father of all Jewish people, had a nephew named Lot. Lot ended up living down in a place called Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were notorious for sinful behavior. They were kind of like the most messed up area in the world at that time. Well, God was going to bring destruction. He happens to tell Abraham. Abraham's like, ah, God, my nephew's there. You got to get that guy out. And he's like, all right, I'll get him out, but I'm taking the place down. And he said, all right, that's good. Angels themselves go down into Sodom and Gomorrah, grab Lot and his wife and their two girls and said, we're getting out of here right now. All wrath is coming down. Fire, brimstone, all that stuff. Guys, go, 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 get your stuff and we're out of here. Let's go. I don't want anyone looking back. I want you to run forward. 
And as they broke out of the city and the fire and brimstone began to rain down, Lot's wife did what? She looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Why'd she look back? Is it because God hates curiosity? No, that's silly. She wasn't looking back because she was curious. She was looking back because the stuff that she loved was getting ruined. He said right here, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. What does that mean? It means don't love you and your stuff more than God. We have a problem with that, don't we? Isn't that kind of America's problem? That we love our stuff more than God. Here's how you can tell. If God takes everything away from you, are you okay? And if you're not, we got a problem here. Because ultimately, God says, I need to be enough for you. I am your joy. I am your everything. Your stuff is merely your stuff. All your stuff can be replaced. But when we begin to put our hearts in and our dreams in and our hopes in our stuff, that which we've amassed, that which we've worked for, that which gives us our identity, when we begin so enraptured by our stuff that we are immovable for the plans of God, we lost the war. He said, guys, when I'm bringing down wrath and I'm doing something in judgment and it's not for you, I need you to trust me on this. And I need you to hear my voice and react immediately. I do not need you playing games of, oh, I left my Xbox. I don't need any of that stuff going on with you. I don't need the whole, what about my 401k? I don't need this whole, well, what about my uh, Roth IRA? What am I? I, I don't need any of that. I want you to do what I ask you to do because I'm serious. Don't look back. Got it? Here's what's fascinating. There's a historian by the name of Eusebius. There's only a few historians that write about this era. One of them is Josephus. The other is Eusebius. They both have terrible names. (laughs) Eusebius wrote and said this about the attack and conquering of A.D. 70. I thought this was super cool. Christians, having listened to a warning or a portent, saw the enemy advancing and fled to Pella into the mountains, and they were not a part of the siege. In other words, it worked. On the contrary, when the Jews who had just finished Passover, all the pilgrims came in, the city was absolutely packed. When they saw the approaching armies, they ran within the walls for protection. And they all died. You understand? This is practical advice that Jesus was trying to get through. All right, here we go. He said, and this is why, kids, why I'm telling you this. For these are days of vengeance. And if I don't have vengeance against you, this isn't for you. This is actually a judgment issue. Get out of my way. I'm doing a judgment thing. Hey, Lot, this isn't for you. It's a judgment thing on Sodom and Gomorrah. I want you to get out of here. That's the idea. Judgment isn't for the children of God. Now, are we getting caught up in it? Yeah, we are, of course. When a neighborhood's getting blown up and you live there, there's some... Serious loss and casualties. But this is what he said. For those are days of vengeance. Why? To fulfill all that is written. Now when this stuff goes down, let me give you more practical advice, he said. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Why? Why does that matter? I don't know. I guess we'll ask the ladies. How fun is it to travel pregnant? Right. You really want to run to the mountains? No, you don't. And now you're absolutely paranoid for your newborn infant, right? So everything got worse. Then he says, pray that your flight may not be in winter. Why? Practical reasons. The rivers flood and you can't travel very well. Okay? Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Why? 
because it could be as practical as you can't get any supplies on the way out because everything shuts down on the Sabbath. Remember, we're in Israel. Maybe it's because observant Jews are seeing you run around doing stuff and they're going to tell on you. It could be a variety of reasons you can't get your friends to go with you because they're going, we don't travel on the Sabbath. I don't know why, but it's very practical. So Jesus says, pray that it doesn't happen like this. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the creation of the world that God created until now. Nope, and never will be. That sounds pretty serious. Okay, so let's talk about the first part. Uh, did you see something fascinating there when I was talking about the pray that it doesn't happen here, 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 here? Here's what I saw. Do you think Jesus was just messing with them? Do you think that he was saying, man, pray for this, kind of like the world does? Uh, man, dude, I pray you get that job. What you mean is I hope you get that job because you didn't actually pray for it, right? You understand what I'm saying? Have you noticed how, remember I was talking about pulling Jesus out of things? Have you noticed how awkward the world is when bad things happen? They don't know what to say anymore. So on the radio, for example, when someone passes away, what is the new phrase? Our thoughts are with you. Oh, that's nice. Are you thinking about me? That's really helping me out a lot. I appreciate that. Hey, buddy, how about you keep your thoughts and how about you pray for me? I don't need your thought. You're already thinking about me. That's why you're talking to me. You sent your thoughts to me, did you? Does that help me out? Your little powerful thoughts? Those are stupid. But they don't know what to say because they realize they sound like jerks. Hey, I hear somebody died. I'm sorry. That's all you got. Do you understand? You pull Jesus out in a bad situation is bitter. Whereas for a believer, you can say, man, you just got crushed. I'm going to intercede for you that things would bolster you up and your situation would change. Do you understand that Jesus in that situation makes everything different? Now, was Jesus just messing with these guys going, man, I sure pray. You guys better pray that it doesn't happen there, man. You better hope that it doesn't happen. Is that what he does? Jesus play that game? No, he doesn't. Then what did he just say? Pray it doesn't happen. Why? Because that makes a difference. Do you think that prayer changes world events? Because it does. I don't think Jesus is messing around. You know what I think Jesus just said? Pray, I will alter the time of that year. Oh, I know when it's coming down. But I will change it based on the prayers of my people. I need you to understand the power of prayer. And it's not power of prayer independent of God. It's the power of your God who's asked you to pray. You understand what I mean? Oh, well, God's going to do what God's going to do. And, you know, I mean, prayed about a bunch of stuff and it never happened. And hold up. Are you telling me that a good, good father is just going to rubber stamp your ideas? Oh, no, no, no. He's allowed to veto you because we don't know what we're talking about. So I would assume that a lot of our prayers, the answer is, I heard you, sweetie, and I can't do that for you. That's not working. That's a bad idea. So yes, you're going to hear no an awful lot. That does not mean that your prayers are not heard. It does not mean that they're not effective. God will also hear those prayers and morph them and change them for all things work for the good of those who love Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? Here's the other thing. Oh, if God's going to do what God's going to do, you know what? God is smart enough to trigger his events that he's planned in advance off your prayers. God is smart and complex enough to say, I'm going to do that, but I will not do that until you pray about it. Now, all of a sudden, your prayers have a huge linchpin effect, do they not? Why would he do that? Because he's involving us in the process. If he just does it without us, 
We call it a coincidence. We call it an accident. We call it a happenstance. But the minute we're praying about it, we're engaged in it, we're looking at God doing it, and we're going to give him the praise for it. So he wants us involved in the process, even though he still thinks it was a good idea before you thought it was a good idea. He wants all of us engaged in the process and says, all you got to do is pray. Well, let's say he wants to get more than one person on board. Is it possible that he puts it on your heart in the church to pray for something? And you're like, Lord, I'm praying like crazy and nothing's happening. He's like, I know, man, you got to get some more people praying with you. Why? Well, I need them involved too. All right, guys, come on, come on, come on. We're all praying. Let's pray for this. Let's pray for this. All right, you know what? All right, let's get some more people on there. Let's get some more people because trust me, I'm going to get this thing done, but I'm not going to receive the glory that I need to receive because everybody else is apathetic and not paying attention. So let's get the whole herd together. All right, and trigger, boom, and he throws down the miracle. You understand what I'm saying? That is not violating the sovereignty of God. It is not stopping anything. It's just the way that it goes. All right, that's a tangent. Hey, amen, praise God. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people, great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world, not to now, and not will ever be. Okay, two things fight with me on this phrase. One makes it sound like the end of the world. You're going, seriously, AD 70 was the worst devastation to the Jewish people ever? Are you kidding me? Yes, I agree it's horrific, and I'll explain how it's horrific in a moment. But 1.1 million Jews lost their lives there. 97,000 were taken into captivity and destroyed somewhere else. You're telling me that that was worse than the Holocaust, which lost 6 million Jews. You're telling me that it was worse than under Stalin's reign, where 20 million Jews worldwide were decimated. Are you telling me that that's the worst that has ever happened to the Jewish people? That doesn't sound right. Wouldn't that be the end of the world? Shouldn't that be the worst? So in one sense, it sure sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? But on the other hand, look at the phrase again. It can't be the end of the world. It says, great tribulation hasn't been from the beginning, not until now, and anything after that's devastating won't even match up to it. Uh, at the end of the world, there is no more devastation after it. So that's kind of silly. Yeah? Yeah. So I think it's talking about A.D. 70. Let me tell you what happened. Through a series of murders and suicides in the high levels of leadership of Rome, starting with Nero committing suicide and his follow-up got murdered and his follow-up committed suicide and his follow-up got murdered, we eventually have a guy that rose to power named Vespasian. Vespasian needed to shut down this Jewish revolt once and for all. The Jews had fought the Romans. They had slaughtered some of them. They had fought back and forth. And they were just causing a massive problem. And Rome was running the world in those days. And they're not going to have this little country fighting them all the time. And so after they were done with all the political intrigue, Vespasian said, I'm going to take out Jerusalem. I will wipe it out. I'm tired of you guys fighting with me. And the first thing he did as new emperor was put his son Titus in charge of the fight. Now, 10 years later, Titus would be emperor as well. Titus grabs four legions of soldiers, sends them all down, and they surround Jerusalem. Jerusalem is very easily defended. At that time, it had a three-wall system. So you had to break through three separate walls just to get inside the city. They put up their best war machines. They're throwing and shooting javelins. They're catapulting rocks. They're using battering rams. And they're trying to get through the walls. And they, it takes them forever. And, it, and they finally said, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to starve them out. We've got to get these guys out of here. So they shut off all the supply lines. And they launch a siege that I messed up the date last time. It was, it was not 13 months. It was five months long of a siege. They were going to starve them out, cut off their water supply, cut off all this stuff. Now, here's what's intriguing. Inside Jerusalem was a lot of fighting already. Jerusalem was a mess. You had the conservatives fighting the zealots, right? The zealots just wanted to kill everybody. And the conservatives were trying to work with Rome. And, and they were going back and forth. And 
check this out. The conservatives saw that a siege was coming, and so they stockpiled food inside the city. For wisdom. The zealots burned it all because they wanted to force a fight. That's not going to turn out very well. They locked down the siege. Anyone that escapes was crucified and hung on a cross and put in the trench so that everyone would see what would happen. They were sick and tired of it now. They battered it and battered it and battered it, broke through the first wall, broke through the second wall. Over this five months, everything was chaotic. It says, and for the children that are in the room, we're going to keep this PG-13, all right? They were reduced to cannibalism even within their families. Men were eating their leather belts and their leather straps. They were searching the sewer systems and eating what other people had already eaten. And it was just the most horrific environment. And it is written about by Josephus, the historian, to the nth detail. You can read all those accounts. He was there. He was the negotiator. So he saw it inside and out. Finally, they break through. Everybody's pretty much dead. All the people that are still alive run into the temple and slam the doors. Now, Titus didn't want the temple destroyed. What did Jesus say was going to happen, though? The temple was going to get destroyed. Titus said, guys, we're going to take over this place. Don't mess with the temple because I'm going to make it a temple to the Roman emperor. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. God said, "Uh, no, you're not. In violation of Titus's authority... The soldiers got so worked up in a frenzy, the historian said, as if driven by God, they decided to set it afire. They threw the fire up over into a window. It ignited the sanctuary. They started, the people poured out. All the gold began to melt down into the rocks. The rocks began to shatter apart. The whole thing was a chaotic mess. It was so bad and so messed up That even though they won the city, and if you go to the Roman Forum today, there's a big, huge arch to Titus over the sack of Jerusalem. But when they tried to give him the wreath of victory, he rejected it and said, I was merely an instrument of God's wrath. I mean, talk about God's hand over all this stuff. Finally, the whole thing, 1.1 million, the 97,000 were sent into the arenas or into the mines of Egypt. And God said decimating terrible how is that the worst maybe it's percentage wise maybe percentage of jews in the world because all the jews of the world had gathered for passover and there weren't a lot of them and a huge percentage almost just got wiped out there i don't know let's finish this out it says this they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations yep that happened and jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the gentiles yep that's the romans until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's when Jesus comes back. And if those days had not been cut short by the Lord, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he cut short the days. Daniel had a prophecy that he called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Anybody ever studied that kind of thing? It talks about the end of the world. That's referred to right here. The end of the day of the Gentiles. What's that going to look like? Interestingly enough, the Jews work off a calendar of sevens. Seven, one week is seven years. So when Daniel laid it out, he laid it out in a three-step process. The first section of sevens were seven weeks or 49 years. From his prophecy until the day that they got their temple back was 49 years. Because Daniel saw the first one fall. Prophesied that it would be rebuilt, and it was rebuilt in 49 years. Then it was 63 weeks, 434 years later, he said, would come the one to rescue. And who was that? Jesus rode into Jerusalem in that year as our Messiah. There's one last week, because that's only 69 weeks. Where's that last week? Shouldn't it have come next? Everyone thought so. They assume that once the Messiah comes, 
everything should shut down, but it didn't. There's a big gap between that. Where's the last week? Where's the last seven years? We know it as the great tribulation of the end times. The way that the traditional view of it is this. One day in the future, there'll be a great world leader. We know him as the Antichrist. Will rise up and he will gain political authority. He will partner with the Jewish people and he will make a pact with them. What he says is that they can rebuild their temple and reinstitute their worship. Now, do you understand what a big move that would be? What he's going to somehow negotiate them to get the temple mount back. And they're going to rebuild what they've been waiting for for all these hundreds and thousands of years. Are you kidding me? Yep. That's why they like him. And so he makes this promise and everything seems to go along swimmingly until halfway through, three and a half years into it, he turns the tables on him. He violates the contract, says he's God, sets up his image, the abomination of desolation, right in the middle of the temple and begins to persecute and destroy the Jews. Hmm. That is what is known as the Great Tribulation. At the end of that, Jesus makes things right. And he sets up in Jerusalem, and he sets what's called the Millennial Kingdom. All right. Is this all about history? Is this all about academics? Or is this personal? It doesn't matter whether or not we're at the end of the world. It doesn't matter whether or not we're looking in the past. What matters is your temple filled with the Holy Spirit because I don't think any of this stuff belongs to you. If you are a child of God, we want the full max movement of the Holy Spirit of God in you. Yes? And as we look out and realize the more and more we keep pushing him out, the more and more we keep saying no to him, the more and more we keep jamming our lives full of our stuff, the more and more we keep getting distracted and sidetracked on everything in this world, the more and more we put that stuff before God, the less and less he is glorified in our lives. What we want and what we desire and what we need and what is absolutely necessary is that God is at full capacity of his glory. You understand that? And in this church, that is the goal. In our lives, that is the goal. And so how do we then do that? We must talk to him. We must live for him. We must surrender to him. We must stop being all about us. And it's really hard. Man, I have such a hard time getting over myself. How many prayers are about me and how much are not about praise and worship? I mean, I get it. But it's what we're here for. It's why we exist. That we are temples and we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit in this place. Come upon us and show us how to have intimacy and relationship with you. Show us how we can talk to you and hear you and walk with you and love you and enjoy you. Open up your word to us. Open up our prayer times and make them vibrant and alive. Minimize the distraction of the world or help us to have the strength to press through the noise. Allow us, Lord, to be captivated by you that you might be glorified in us. God, we know why we're here. We know why we're built. There is no need, Lord, for destruction of your children because they inhabit your presence. But God, we want, even though we are inhabited by you, we want you to have full reign. We want you to have full glory. And we want you to shine as brightly as you'd like through our lives. So show us what changes need to be made that you might be maximized. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.